let me just say again, it's, uh, it's a joy to see those of you who are here today. It's obvious that you came not because you felt like it, and it was an easy thing to do with all this rain, but uh, we do so because we want to honor Jesus Christ. We want to acknowledge that he is worthy of our worship and worship together uh, in corporate expression of our acknowledgement of his greatness. Let's uh, open in prayer, I mean, also pray before we look into the Word. Again, our Father, what a rich treasure it is to have before us copies of the Scriptures in our own language. These pages of Scripture and the blessing of having them in common language was something that many people died for. And so we thank you that we come uh, today on a rain-soaked Sunday rejoicing over the blessing of having something far more valuable than all the gold in Fort Knox. We, are, we have that which is your word right for us to read and to think about, to study, and even today to have proclaimed to us through the feebleness of preaching. I pray, Lord, that you would uh, help us to know you and to know your word better today through this message, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, certainly the year 2017 is a milestone year. This is obviously, for many of you who've been keeping track, the 500th anniversary of the occasion on which um, Martin Luther, in 1517, posted onto the door there at the Wittenberg uh, church, 95 statements, basically. They call them 95 theses, but 95 statements about his concerns over a number of things going on in the Roman Catholic Church at that time. And that one act symbolizes the beginning of this momentous work of God. Now, it wasn't just Luther, it's not just that one event. We know that there are many events leading up to that. There was John Huss, there was uh, Wycliffe in England, there were many people who had prior to the time of Luther had already begun to express concern about getting back to the Bible and following the scriptures. But this, it symbolizes the beginning of this momentous work, which we call the Reformation. Now, every generation, it seems to me, would be wise to learn and appreciate once again this rich spiritual heritage that has come at great cost. Many of the folks involved had to lay down their lives for the truths that they were convinced of in the Word of God. And many can be, much can be gained by as we review the scriptures um, that were used to confront so many different forms of false teaching, of false practices that were done down through the centuries. It's helpful as we familiarize ourselves with some of these that we become even more careful in our understanding of the reading and studying of the Word ourselves and the urgency to live out the Scriptures today in our day-to-day -day life. Now our text this morning, I hope you have it in front of you, there is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 15 through 17. And this is written by Paul at the end of his life. He is a tremendously gifted missionary, a church a planter, a person who's gone around, started churches, who has been a powerful impact as an apostle for many people coming to Christ. And here's the Apostle Paul handing off the baton, as it is, knowing that this is one of the last laps 
around the race of life for him. He's handing the, the baton off to Timothy, who's coming behind him. And he says to Timothy, his protege, listen, from childhood, you, Timothy, have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Now, how is it that the Scriptures are able to give this kind of wisdom that leads to salvation? What is it about the Scriptures? Well, it's because of their nature. It's because of the nature of the Bible. He says, all Scripture is inspired by God. It means God breathed or God exhaled is literally that translation. And therefore, it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Now, this idea that Scripture, the view of Scripture that is, that is portrayed here or, or presented to us here in this text is so significant because what he's saying is that when you read Scripture, you're reading God's Word. He's the author of it. And Jesus affirmed the same things. Very interesting, when Matthew chapter 22, Jesus has a, a confrontation, a discussion, if you will, with the Sadducees uh, who did not believe in the literal resurrection. And so he's interacting with them. And it's interesting, he quotes a passage from Exodus chapter 3, which was written about 1,400 years from the time in which he's quoting it in the first century there. And he asks this question. He says, to the Sadducees, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? Spoken to you by God in that text of Scripture. So what Jesus is saying, Jesus viewed the Scripture then as the actual words of God. Matter of fact, you could say that when Scripture speaks, God speaks. Think about that for a moment. When the Scripture speaks, God speaks. And the written Word of God is the unchanging, comprehensive, authoritative, and reliable Word of God. One author summarizes this passage here in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 by saying that Scripture alone is sufficient to lead us to salvation and fully to equip us spiritually for all that God demands of us. Nothing else can do that, my friend. Nothing. The Bible is the only infallible guide for what we are to believe and what we are to do. And when we say infallible, what that means is that it is incapable of making mistakes. The Scriptures cannot be wrong. And therefore, they are the only guide the only reliable guide for us in what in for, for that which we are believe in faith and in practice. Scripture holds a position of, and your notes there at the top of the page, holds a position of absolute authority in the life of believers. Absolute authority. And so I want us to consider this morning the response that these reformers made to their situation, to their challenges that, that had unfolded at that time in the Middle Ages, in which things had declined, there had been a, a getting away from, a, a, in a sense someone had said it's like a, a boat that became un, um, untethered and the boat was just 
going on down the stream, no longer anchored to anything, just going with the flow. And so the Reformers took a stand, and they have, I believe, several implications that we can learn for our generation today as we reconsider this uh, significant time in history. First of all, then, the Reformers, Reformers are needed in every generation. Not just in the 16th century, but in every generation. Because the pattern of history is to move from Scripture alone to Scripture plus something else that is the authority for faith and practice. Church history allows, sorry, church history follows an often repeated pattern in which it moves from the written truth of the Scriptures that were given to the church plus Scripture and plus tradition. It moves in that direction. At the time of Jesus, he encountered a number of Jewish leaders that had elevated the traditions that were taught at that time by various men so that these traditions then were elevated to the, the same level as Scripture and therefore even more authoritative sometimes than even Scripture themselves. An example would be in Mark chapter 7. If you've got your Bible, you want to look at that passage, Mark chapter 7. This is an example again in Jesus' day confronting the Pharisees, the scribes, the people who were the experts in understanding the law and various teaching of Scripture. And so in Mark chapter 7, Jesus says, verse 7, page 1195 in your pew Bible, In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Notice that teaching as doctrines the precepts, not of Scripture, but of men. And so he says, you folks are doing this, that exact thing. He says, you nicely set aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. What tradition is that? Moses said, honor your father, your mother. He who speaks evil of father and his mother, let them be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or his mother, Anything of mine you might have been helped by is Corban, which means given to God. In other words, if you say, what I would normally share with you in your old age and what I would normally use to support you in your, in your uh, aging years, I'm no longer going to give to you. I'm going to give it to God, supposedly. You no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition which you have handed down. What's he saying? He's saying the Jewish elders made this tradition superior to the Scripture. They undermined the clear teaching of God's Word, and they've replaced it with their own ideas, their own practices. No matter how many people they want to quote, no matter how many experts they said, they thought that that was the wise thing to do, it's replacing Scripture. And so Jesus called them out for doing that. And the Word of God was written down, it was recorded so that it would not be tampered with, so that it would not be augmented, so that it would not be diminished in any way. Matter of fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, Moses warned against this when he said, You shall not add to the Word which I am commanding you today, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you Indeed, God's Word is to be the final authority in all matters. And sadly enough, the Roman Church 
which has always affirmed the authority of the Bible, has also, though, added to it the role of tradition. The tradition has been elevated to a position of authority equal to or greater than the Scriptures. The church as an institution has gradually become the authoritative arbiters of all matters of truth. And down through the centuries, we've seen extra-biblical doctrines that were canonized and various dogmas and legends were added to the church practice and various aspects of church teaching, including things like the veneration of the saints, the doctrines like Immaculate Conception, the Assumption of Mary, Purgatory, to name a few. And contemporary editions of the Catechism of the Catholic Church actually continue to affirm this position. They say, quote, The Roman Church does not derive her certainty about all revealed truths from the Holy Scriptures alone. Both Scripture and tradition must be accepted, must be honored with equal sentiments of devotion and reverence. That's from the Catechism. Now, as we've said earlier in our sermon series on Acts, the believers in Berea were commended by the Apostle Paul, who examined everything they were taught. No matter who taught it, no matter what they were hearing, they were to examine it in light of the Scriptures. Acts 17. They received the Word with great eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see whether these things, the things that Paul, the things that Silas were teaching them, to see if they were so. And so we are called to be Berean believers. We must avoid adding our own or any other person's preferences, traditions, experiences, or subjective feelings as an additional or equal source of authority when deciding what we will practice and what we believe. Martin Luther and the other reformers, they waged this battle over which person, which group of people has the authority over the church, over the leaders of the church. Luther insisted that the church must conform to biblical teaching, that the church must follow biblical standards and set forth there for her leaders as well, all written in the Word. One of the things that shaped Martin Luther's life was he was given opportunity to travel from Germany to Rome at a certain point. And he went there and he looked around and saw so many things that deeply, deeply distressed and troubled him that he never forgot. He was aware and saw firsthand how the church there in Rome was overrun with priests who were fathering children outside of the bonds of marriage. All sorts of parties and where prostitutes are invited to join in, hosted by the leaders, even the Pope himself of the church in previous centuries. It, it was just, the church was desperately in need of being changed and reformed. And the church also, of course, again from Luther's position, was sanctioning the selling of these indulgences, which were written promises that were uh, made available. And you could have one which would promise you that your punishment, the length of your punishment in purgatory would be lessened if you were to make a financial donation to the church. 
The church at that time was in need of building this uh, St. Peter's Cathedral there in Rome, and so there was a great need for money, and so they were offering a number of these indulgences, quite generous uh, in larger amounts than they had in the past, and so all you had to do was make a financial donation. So Luther saw that and said, wait a minute, where is that taught in the Scriptures? Where in the world do we find that you can just make a donation and have this whole idea of purgatory, number one, and number two, how do we find anything to do with our sins based on money you give? Completely omitting and forgetting about the role of Christ and his death on the cross. That was the battle that, one of many battles that Luther faced, but the battles I think for our day are questions like this. Who or which authority will we follow when it comes to sexual ethics in our land and in our time? Sexual morality. In a day in which same-sex marriage is being put before us as that which is commonly practiced? What do the scriptures say? When there is widespread hooking up culture, I call it, people who are sexually active, they're not involved in any form of marriage at all, no marriage, no commitment, no vows, and yet there's all sorts of sexual participation in the areas. What do we consider that? the free expression of who I am as a person, or living by our feelings, or is it that which is clearly called fornication in Scripture? Or you could look at the issue of which authority are we going to follow when it comes to the understanding of the origins of the earth and the academic pressure to yield to a naturalistic, evolutionary understanding of human life, in which life is devalued down to the level of we're just different combinations of, of cells and, and uh, matter and therefore we have no inherent value, uh, no significance to us that's any different from any other forms of life. I mean, these are the kinds of pressures that are being uh, squeezed upon this society, this culture. The question is, how are you going to find answers to that? Who will you trust? Who is your authority? Well, the reformers. It's Scripture alone. Secondly, I'd like us to consider the Reformers who sought to redirect the church from this idea of the church plus tradition back onto the path of Scripture alone. Luther was one of those many Reformers who impacted his generation with this unwavering, unwavering commitment to following the Scriptures alone. Many of the priests of his time in the 16th century were familiar with church teaching, church documents, church councils that have been held, and they're very much studied up on all those things. But sadly, the priests, the ones who were leading the local uh, churches, they had never read the New Testament. They'd never even read it once themselves. It's what I would call Jesus' comment about the spiritual leaders of his day, the blind leading the blind. So Luther and the other reformers clearly saw the need to make available the Word of God into the, into the vernacular, the, the everyday language of the people, that people could read the Scriptures themselves so they could be educated what God has revealed to us and therefore equip them. And so Luther 
by the sovereign hand of God, providential hand of God, went from a situation where he was afraid he was going to be arrested and eventually imprisoned, uh, supposedly was kidnapped by some of his friends, and they took him off away from uh, the authorities of the day, and he was spent several months and years in a castle in Wartburg. And in that castle, he spent time and devoted his energies to translating the New Testament uh, from uh, the original language of the Greek language, which was now available for the first time in all these years, published by Erasmus not too long ago. And he translates it into the German language in 11 weeks' time. Which, think about it, is an amazing feat of scholarship. And Luther corrected a number of mistranslations that had been in place for centuries because the only Bible of that time was the Latin Vulgate. And so most people couldn't read Latin, but Latin was the only thing they had available. And the Vulgate read this way, Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, has recorded and translated Jesus speaking at the beginning of his ministry. It says, Do penance, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was the way the Vulgate translated that. When Luther came upon the text, he's reading the Greek word metanoia, which is the word from which we get the word repent. He translated it, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, or be penitent for the kingdom of God is at hand. What a difference. You see, by the way, Luther's translation of the New Testament, he's one of the first persons to put in the order of the New Testament books the way that they are today. Did you know that? That he's the one that grouped the Gospels together the way they are, followed by Acts, followed by the writings of the Apostle Paul, and continue on to the end. The point is that Luther brought into focus numerous areas where the Scriptures were differing from the official teaching of the church at the time. And obviously Luther respected the writings of the early church fathers, whether it be the Nicene Creed or other creeds, but he just made sure and made it clear that whatever creeds have been affirmed by the church, they all of those things, all those decisions, all those creeds, they must be judged by the pure rule of God's word. In other words, the church is not the final word, it's always scripture. And what was interesting about Luther was that he began to disseminate biblical teaching and ideas out in a very widespread way. He was really a revolution, brought about a revolution in the book industry at the time. And think about it, before they had the printing press, the only books that were available were books that were handwritten. You'd have to commission a book. Say, I want to buy a copy of a book, and I'm only going to pay for chapters 4, 7, and 10. And someone would start writing them taking forever. And then, you know, months and months and months later, they hand you this thing. It's, it's bound together. It's not with a hardback. And that was publishing. Then they came the movable press, Gutenberg. And then here comes Luther. And this is interesting. He wrote all sorts of books and pamphlets, which were printed, became very popular. And he would respond to things writing in very, in, in the language of the people, not in some sophisticated intellectual language. And here's a statistic. Between 1502 and 1516, this is right before he posted his 95 statements on the door. The printers there in Wittenberg published only eight books in all that period of time. 
And then it says that between 1517, going forward now, into 1546, those same publishers published 91 books, most of which were written by Luther and those associated with him in the Reformation. Now that says a lot. What he's saying is that Luther was a person who spoke to his generation, making known those things, using the technology of the day, which again, we'd be wise to do the same uh, with uh, the internet, and, and there's so much good that is on the internet, obviously there's so much that's not good. But here's a good quote from Luther at the end of his life. He says, of the 60,000 pages he wrote over his lifetime, he said, I hope that all of my books would disappear and the Holy Scriptures alone be read. In other words, Scripture is more important than what I'm writing. Hopefully what I'm writing is going to point you to the Scriptures. That's what he's trying to say. One last thing I'll just say about Luther is he tried to bring people back to what the Scriptures were teaching. That at the time before Luther was on the scene, church was mostly you sitting there passively, letting a priest lead the service and ceremony, and there was a choir occasionally who would chant and have various songs that were just sung by them. And Luther said, no, no. The scriptures talk about speaking to one another hymns, psalms, and spiritual songs. We're to be doing this. And so he called for there to be congregational singing. So you see the quote there by Luther, there under uh, letter 2C in your, note, in your outline. Next to the word of God, music deserves the highest praise. The gift of language combined with the gift of singing was given to man that he should proclaim the word of God through music. So us singing today is, again, part of this rich heritage of realizing that what? We're to sing to each other about God, about the gospel, about the truth of God in our time of worship together. At the end of his life, in 1544, Luther, after talking about modifying and improving worship and various other practical matters, he's made this statement. I think it's so helpful. He says, we can spare everything except the word. In other words, there are lots of things that we can disagree on and we can, we can just overlook, and, but there's some things we can't, and that is whatever the word says, whatever the word teaches. Now that brings me to a very challenging point in my life and in our lives. We can talk about Scripture alone all we want, the authority of the Word. The question is, do you ever read it? Do you ever take some time in your day to say, I want to now listen to God speak to me through the Word of God? I want to turn off my gadgets. I want to turn off the things that make noise and keep beeping at me and demanding my attention. And I'm just going to read the Scriptures. Do you ever meditate on them? Do you ever reflect upon them? Do you ever pray over them using the scriptures to immediately turn that into a prayer right back to God? Now that's a conversation with God. God speaks to us in his word. We take his word and turn it right back into a prayer. It's not magic. Or you can actually take the Psalms and say, Lord, this is my prayer. and Use the Psalms as your own prayer to God. There's no shortage of reading going on in our society today, I'm convinced. It's just that people are reading 140 characters or less. And that's what they're obsessed with. And that's what they're thinking is so urgently important that they'll look that instead of driving a car. 
But how is it that we're overlooking the most precious gift that we've now received handed down to us? An incredible amount of work and effort and labor invested in it, and yet so many of us seem to not find much time, and when we do, it doesn't seem to interest us much at all. I urge you to pray and ask the Lord to give you a hunger and thirst for the Word and turn from away any sin in your life that's keeping you from having a hunger for the Word of God. Thirdly here and finally, I want to just once again remind us that the Reformers demonstrated faithfulness to the Scriptures regardless of the consequences. Apostle Paul, first century, made it very clear to Timothy who Timothy saw it firsthand himself, but Paul just reiterated once again, said, listen here, if you're going to be faithful to the Scriptures, if you're going to live a godly life, if you're going to take the truth and live it out in a way that is faithful, it's going to result in persecution. 2 Timothy 3, verse 10, verse 12. And Paul's fidelity to biblical teaching resulted in him being stoned, him having beatings, imprisonments, you name it. And in the 16th century, when Luther spoke out, when he made known his concerns about the church leaders of his day, promoting various ideas and practices which were not biblical, guess what happened to him? He was threatened with excommunication. He was imprisoned. They sought to imprison him, and they tried to put him to death. Those in the charges of the church demanded that his writings be burned. They said, no longer can you write the things you're writing. Everything you've written must be destroyed. And in April of 1521, Luther was summoned to a meeting there in Worms, Germany. And he was told, listen, at this meeting you must give us an answer. Are you or are you not going to recant and, and uh, change your mind and, and in many ways... Uh, uh, no longer affirm the things that you have written. And at that meeting, I have it in your notes there, April 18, 1521, this is his reply. And this is not an easy reply for him, because he knows the cost. He also knows that this is so difficult for him to do, he said, give me one more night to think about it. I mean, he was, he was very, he much, very much struggled. He says, unless I am convinced of error by the testimony of Scripture, or, since I put no trust in the unsupported authority of Pope or councils, since it's plain that they have erred and often contradicted themselves, or by manifest reasoning, I stand convicted by the Scriptures to which I have appealed, and my conscience is taken captive by God's Word. I cannot and will not recant anything, for to act against our conscience is neither safe for us nor open to us, on this I take my stand, I can do no other. God help me. Amen. Many reformers face severe penalties and spiritual forms of persecution. Not a few of them died as martyrs. But will you notice what Luther was doing in that statement? He was saying that his knowledge of scriptures informed his conscience to the point where he says, I cannot go against my conscience, which says, that's wrong for me to recant. I can't do that, because this is true, is what God's Word says. I, 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 must, I want to say again to you, it's worth your time to Google, at some point, John MacArthur, the pastor John MacArthur, 
and Charlottesville and find out the video that comes up on that, in which he answered a question about what do you make of what happened at Charlottesville and then understand the dynamics there. And his answer was profound. I'm talking about conscience here. That's where I'm going. His statement was, listen, the human heart is hostile toward God, it is proud, it is selfish. And what we know is that there are three things that restrain the evil in human heart. The first is conscience, and conscience must be informed by some moral law, moral code that helps it understand what's right and wrong. And in our society today, guess what's happened? There is no moral law being taught. Everything is, is for the, 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 your, your choosing. Nothing's right, nothing's wrong, everything's relative. And so that's, there's a, no, no training of anybody's conscience going on, this new morality where everything's okay. And then you add to that the breakdown of the family, which is no longer imposing any kind of restraints upon behavior, any kind of discipline upon its next generation. Add to that the fact that there's a breakdown in the police, uh, those who are in authority, to enforce the laws, and they assault the police enough, he says, there's no respect for them at all, and eventually what you have is a chaotic situation in which there is no restraint. My point here is, at what, at what, to what extent is the Word of God informing our conscience, in which we begin to say, I dare not do that because alarms are going off in my conscience says, God is not pleased with that. Or God is very much pleased when I do this. The question Lutheran reformers kept asking was, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? The opinions of all these powerful people, all these pontiffs, it didn't sway them. They chose the way of truth. How many of us are standing on our convictions and we do what the Scripture alone commands us to do? How many of us set our hearts on avoiding the things that God's Word says we are to avoid? How many of us follow the trends of the world, ignoring the absolutes that God has revealed in His Word? If we're to evangelize and proclaim the gospel and make disciples, we need to have the clear and sufficient revelation that God has given us in His Word. We need to know the difference between the true teaching of Scripture and that which is false teaching that goes around in our world today. Indeed, we are facing a very challenging time in which we are being encouraged to follow human reason and what makes sense and to not offend people's um, sensibilities. And not focus on sin so much. Don't focus on things like eternal damnation. Don't focus on a holy God whose wrath is a reality we all must, we're all going to face someday. Rather than standing on man's opinions, we must stand on the truth. And I want to put in two cautions here <clears throat> when it comes to this standing on the truth. The first is to be aware that there's a danger of zealously trying to preserve our, our own cultural traditions, our own preferences, and refuse to change our methods of ministry, our style of ministry, or other non-essentials. The danger is we become and elevate those to the same level of the Scriptures, and they're not. They're not the same. For example, what clothes we wear during a worship service is never explicitly spelled out in Scripture. 
You're not going to find it. And the times of our worship services, the style of music of our service, the length of our service, it's not spelled out in Scripture. So the point is there's lots of leeway there. We must never make those absolutes, which the Scriptures don't make absolutes. And secondly, I would just say we must also guard against adhering to some Scripture admonitions and overlooking those that we find to be difficult or inconvenient. We say, oh, I like these. I think these are things I'm going to adopt, and I'll, I'll do these things. But these I don't particularly like. They, they cramp my style. I don't think I'm going to do those. There's not this pick-and-choose option. For example, Scripture says that we are to go and make disciples. Go. You don't wait for them to come. You initiate. You go. You take the initiative to other people to bring the gospel in their direction. So we need to be careful that we not adopt the pragmatism of our age, which asks the question, what works? What works in the world of men? Rather, we should be asking, what's written in the Word of God? And let's follow. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we are aware that it is the Scriptures alone that is our our necessary and infallible authority. We need, Lord, we need your word applied to our conscience today. We need your word to help us in our parenting today. We need your word to help us in our life of the church today. We need your word to help us in our leisurely pursuits today's world. Uh, we need your word, Lord, when it comes to understanding the bigger issues of our day in terms of policies and and uh, the challenges of our culture. We need your word, Lord, when we're seeking to proclaim the gospel and to make disciples. We need to be people of the word. And so, Lord, I pray that we would not just affirm in our minds the authority of your word, but help us, Lord, to study it, to know it, to love it, to obey it, to yield to it, to have it point us to you. And may we be people of the word, just like others who went before us, and that we might take our stand on your truth and be faithful until you come. We thank you that your word points to a wonderful, all-sufficient Savior. Help us never to lose sight of him and his love, his grace, his goodness, and his excellences. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.